good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Before we dive in, really, to chapter, to chapter 13, verse 12, I do want to remind us of where we are. Last week, it was my aim to somewhat hang some transcendent realities over us so that we could all the more in light of those, I almost think of them as, as triumphant arches, as we live in light of the victory that Christ has provided for us, I, I want us to remember them, to look up for a moment and be reminded of what Christ has accomplished in us and what Christ will accomplish at his second coming. If you pay attention again to verse 11, it says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So if I could just take a moment to remind you, as we are looking at verse 11, what's being presented to us is that we live in the day. Not in the day in the sense that the sun itself is up in the sky, but instead we live in the day of Christ shining in our hearts. Something dramatic has changed within us. Brothers and sisters, we do not live like we were like we used to. We do not live in the darkness any longer. Christ has come and the lights have truly come on. He is the source of each and every bit of that light. He is the sum and substance of that light. And he has truly risen in our hearts. He has dawned, as it were. And we live in this light in a unique way, meaning that there is not a moment that we live after our conversion where the light of Christ is not shining upon us. Brothers and sisters, we do well to live in this light light as we would on the first day of summer, longing to be outside and longing to feel and enjoy that light, seeing it warm us each and every day. It is our great desire to live in this light. He has birthed it in us. And as we experience it and enjoy it, it alters our being day in and day out. It is almost as if the light of Christ, as it makes its way into the human soul, begins to seep deeper and deeper into the darkest crevices of our lives and cast the darkness away. We live in this light, saints, and we do well to remember this. Perhaps it is that you find yourself in a moment of despair or perhaps in a moment of deep temptation. You do well to remember that the light of Christ has shone on you. That in the midst of despair, you can be reminded, ah, but the rays of the sun are upon me. Or perhaps it is that you think that you might find yourself in some way committing a secret sin. No, saints, the light of Christ is on you and it exposes the darkness. But the saint's response to the exposing of darkness is not one of dismay or sorrow. No, it's praise be to God. The darkness has been exposed. A prognosis has been made. There is a wicked thing within me, but the searing light of Christ is able to conquer it. For those of us who hate sin, that is a thrill. The light of Christ is shining in our souls and we live in the warm light of those rays. But then going further, not only do we live in this eternal day of Christ rising in our hearts, we also long for another eternal day. And perhaps you would believe that to be contradictory. But when Christ comes to bring the eternal day, he does not come to bring an end to the previous one by bringing in darkness. Instead, he ushers in the fulfillment of that day of salvation. This is why the phrases for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Saints, there will never be a moment throughout the, from the moment that you're converted throughout all of eternity where the warm light of Christ will not shine upon you. It will grow all the more sweeter 
We celebrate the light of Christ in our own souls today, but brothers and sisters, I am here to tell you that we look forward to a day when he will be the light of that city. And as he is the light of that city, I can say, yes, the light of Christ has been shining on me since I was 15 years old and he birthed it in me. But I can also say, oh, but I look forward to that light shining on me all the more. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What a thrill. Even experiencing the warmth of his light today, it is sweet and it is wonderful. But saints, we do well to remember that there is an even more full version of this to come. I often wonder in the midst of extreme joy, how could this get any better? And in reality, we live in the light of Christ and perhaps it is we should ask, how can this get any better? Saints, it will get better. No matter how bright it shines on you here, we look forward to that day when no shadows will even be. It will get better. And so the question is, in the midst of this wonderful day, in the midst of the light of Christ dawning in our souls, in the midst of looking forward to that reality of salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed, how are we to live in Christ's day? And, you know, perhaps it is you could say, how can we live in the day? But I think if we're to focus on this appropriately, we should have the caveat that this is Christ's day. It's the day in which he has birthed in our souls. We live in light of it and we look forward to the fulfilling of it all the more in the days to come. That phrase, salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed, should always be a thrill for us to experience the light and look forward to it. But it should also remind us that there will come a day when the commands that we find in this particular text of calling us to walk in light in the midst of a dark world will ultimately cease and we will be light in a world full of light. So what are we to do? How are we to conduct ourselves in the midst of Christ's day? Looking at verse 12 and making our way through verse 14, I wanna read that again and I wanna point out a few things, a few commandments that are given in this text. First, looking at verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, first command, and let us put on the armor of light, second command. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, third command, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, fourth command, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, fifth command. So today what I want to do is I want to walk through these five commands, hopefully by God's grace, fill them full with other texts that we find in the pages of scripture and call us to walk appropriately as in the day. So let's begin. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of of darkness. Let's pay close attention to the language that we find here. If we go back to verse 11, it says this, this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's the basic place where we're sitting in the midst of this command that we find in verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Since the night is far gone and the day is at hand, what must we do? We must cast off the works of darkness. No longer are we living there first and foremost. Saints, we do well to remember that that is not our location. A simple way to say it is, that's no longer our address. We have been brought out of darkness darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. It makes no sense for us to continue in the works of darkness since the day has dawned. The day has come. Since the day has come, why can't I, how can I live in any state of participating in the works of darkness? No, those things are to be done in the dark. And saints, we don't live in the dark. We never live in the dark. From the moment of our conversion to the, throughout the expanse of eternity, there will not be a moment where we live in darkness. Therefore, we must never be participants in the works of darkness. We'll get to those works here in a moment. 
But we are quick to say, I must cast these things off. Let us cast these things off. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Can I just be honest with you? The simple phrase, let us, is a beautiful phrase that's scattered throughout the entirety of this passage. And what it denotes is that essentially an ability has been given, so then let us operate in it. Praise be to God that I can cast off the works of darkness. Have you tried that in and of yourself before you were converted? I will never forget the days before I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ where I believed that salvation was merely me working a bit harder. And in the midst of me working a bit harder, what I discovered is these works of darkness cling really close to me. As it were, another passage in scripture reminds me that not only can I be light based upon the light of Christ, but before that point, I was darkness. How can I cast off that which I am? But this simple phrase of let us cast off the works of darkness is a reminder that we can by the finished work and grace of Christ in our life. This is why Romans 8 says, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, how? By the spirit. You cannot white knuckle this. And hear me, perhaps it is you're here this day and the dawn, the dawn has not broken in your soul. You have not come to savor and taste the Lord Jesus Christ and call him good. Yet you have some desire to be morally upright. Hear me, you will fail. Perhaps it is that the world might look at you and say, ah, yes, that is a good old boy. But when you stand before God on the day of judgment, he will say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. It does not matter how upright you are in the courts of men. You will be found wanting in the court of God. No, we must cast off the works of darkness and praise be to God by the spirit. These dark works can be cast off because he has given light to my soul. I'm able not only to do it, but I understand what the works of darkness are. Perhaps it is that you once savored these. I imagine that all of us were in this place. You, perhaps it is that you savored the, the works of the flesh because they truly did satisfy you in some capacity, always wanting, but for just a moment, you felt a small sense of satisf satisfaction. And so you labored and went after them and you went after them hard. But when the, when the light of the world shines in the heart, you begin to see them appropriately. Because my goodness, how it has us fooled. It does not offer us in the sense that it, does, it comes to us and says, I have no pleasure for you. No, we would be fools to say that sin does not contain some pleasure. I will just tell you that it is an inferior pleasure. And it only has the ability to capture those who, has not, who have not tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Once I've tasted that superior and greater pleasure, I understand all the more how frail and feeble the works of darkness actually are. I understand that they are filthy rags and grow to hate the garment even stained with sin. Because I understand I am no longer of the night. I have been brought into the day. How can I continue to participate in this? And as I look at these robes that I've once loved, I see them as filthy and dirty and corrupt. And my desire is to cast them off. I love this word cast off because it's not a gentle phrase. It's not the taking off of in some civil manner. The concept is I'm ripping these things off and casting them out. If we understand the works of darkness, if we understand not just their effect, that they would lead us to death, but if we understand them appropriately, that not only is there a consequence, but we understand that they are at enmity with the God that we love and we adore, how quick we are to cast them off. 
I dare not have this, which is an offense to my king who has made the dawn rise in my own soul. How can I live in a state of darkness? His light has come. And since his light has come, what can I do other than begin to suit myself for the day? And that leads us to the final reason that we will cast off these works of darkness because they are not suitable for the day in which we live. These Works of darkness cannot be found in the midst of the day. As a matter of fact, everything that you will find illustrated in verse 13, you will notice that these are things that are primarily done in the darkness. If I'm of the day, the garments of the night will not do. If I'm of the day, the flesh in which I once lived, the gratification of those desires cannot be brought into the day. I understand them, even in my sinful state of being, that these activities are shameful and the light should never shine upon them. And so what must I do? I cast them off because I am of the day now and I need a better garment. I need something better. You think back to the garden and you see Adam create for himself a garment of fig leaves, just a a small covering. And God looks at him and says, you're naked. They're frail and feeble and they ultimately provide nothing whatsoever. And so we gladly cast these things off. We love to cast these things off. And hear me for just a moment. I am not convinced that this is a momentary command, meaning that at your conversion, you make it your aim to cast these things off. No, most certainly that's the case, but this is a perpetual activity of the saint. We are ever constantly casting off the works of darkness. As, if, as, as Hebrews 12 reminds us, this sin clings closely to us and we are to cast these things off that we might run unhindered. It is our daily activity to cast off the works of darkness. As Romans 8 again says, it is not as though we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh in a single moment. Christ has the ability to do that, but we most certainly do not. We are ever present, ever active in putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh and casting off the works of darkness. But we do need clothing. We have been stripped down as it were, and we need clothing for the time of day in which we live. What is that clothing? Listen again to verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. When we speak of this simple phrase, armor of light, there are a couple of things that we need to understand. The first is this, that word armor is actually a word that traditionally means an instrument or a weapon. So to understand this, you think about it in this way, a hammer for nails, a sword for battle, an armor of light for the day. We want to live faithfully in this day. If I want to drive a nail into a piece of wood, I want a hammer. If I'm going into battle, I want a weapon of war. If I'm going to live in the darkness of this world as someone whose Christ's light has shone upon, then I need the armor of light. I need something to prepare me and to make me ready for the day in which I live. Thus, he calls us to put on, to suit up ultimately and put on the armor of of light. What must we understand about this armor of light? First, it is not crafted by you. And I am convinced that we would come to this and we would long, we come up with clever means by which we can live in the world in which we live. All types of philosophies are introduced. All types of, of, of means are introduced so that we as those who are light in the world can live in the darkness unnoticed. God abandons that thought and says, here's armor of light, go into the night. 
What a clear identifier that says, I'm not like you. I'm distinct. I'm different. Brothers and sisters, we don't lose this. We should never lose our distinctiveness in the world. We are set in armor of light, which clearly identifies our allegiance. It identifies our allegiance because we bear armor that is given to us. And that armor that is given to us bears the mark of its maker. What is the the armor? What is this breastplate that we speak of? I would immediately, and perhaps most of you have already turned there in your mind. Ephesians chapter six tells us of this armor of God, this armor of light. Listen to what Ephesians 6, 10 says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. How do we live in an evil world? He's given us armor for the day. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over his present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places going forward. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all prayer perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What is the armor of light? The armor of light is the armor that God himself has provided for his people. And when we consider this, I think We do well perhaps to take note of the reality that he only gives this armor to his people. It's almost as though, perhaps better yet, it is clearly as though the spirit of God is necessary to indwell the individual for the armor to ever touch them. How can one who does not have the spirit of God bear in them dawn the armor of light? What fellowship does darkness have with light? Saints, if you desire this armor that you might walk straight in a wicked and crooked generation, then we need first and foremost the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of, the, the Spirit of God is the one who equips us with this blessed armor. Helmet of salvation reminding us of the confidence that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Breastplate of righteousness that we might never aim for it ourselves, but simply live in light of that which is provided. Boots fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. We go forth conquering. And as we go forth conquering in the midst of the day, we go forth declaring our allegiance to the one who has given us this great armor. And if I could maybe borrow from Bunyan for just a moment, in the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is fitted with armor, but no no armor is given for his back. Saints, the church is an advancing church. We are a militant church. We are a triumphant church. We press forward and beat back the darkness, not the other way around. If we understand scripture appropriately, we understand that the armor that is given to us is given to us as we triumph. We press forward knowing the church will never be dismayed or beaten or destroyed. The very gates of hell will not prevail against her. This armor is so wonderfully complete that as we cast off these wretched, 
works of darkness and we dawn, we put on this armor of light, we are completely clothed and we are clothed by the grace of God in Christ. He gives us this so that we might wage war appropriately. And hear me, he does not say, and even though this would make perfect sense, he does not say first and foremost in this text, put on the righteousness of Christ. That is to come. He says, put on armor. Put on a weapon, prepare yourself for battle. Saints, when we put on armor, we declare our allegiance, but we also declare our enemy. We understand that as we make our way into this world, as we live in this evil day, as those whom the true day has begun in our own souls, we understand that we make out, we go out for war. We are ever constantly pushing forward. We understand that the darkness will strike at us. Saints, you should never be surprised when the darkness strikes at you. I care not if it's an inward strike or an external strike. Perhaps it is that the most times that you are struck in your life is through inward temptation. Put on the armor of light. That is what you need. And perhaps it is that the world would strike at you. The devil and all of his angels would come at you. Brothers and sisters, what you need is the armor of light. You must be prepared for battle. We live in this wonderful day of Christ, but we still live in a dark day awaiting for that final day to come. When we don the armor of light, we don declaring our allegiance to the giver. We come knowing our enemy and we prepare for war. But we know that we fight not a war that is winnable, a war that is won. What a magnificently distinct perspective. Saints, we don't wage war thinking that it is dependent upon us. We wage war as the Israelites did in the midst of Jericho's defeat. God had won the battle. And we certainly run down those enemies and we make war against them. We are to cast off the works of darkness as we live in this day. Get those away from me. May they burn in the fire. I think of passages like Matthew that tell us that you cut off the arm, the eye, whatever it may be, and you cast it into hell. I think that is a clear picture of this. Put on the armor of light. And then he goes forward and he says, in the midst of that, we are to war and we are to walk properly. Listen to verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. So let's play this out in a, in, a, in a simple way. I have woken up, I've cast off the darkness, I've cast off the works of darkness, I've put on the armor of light, and then I'm commanded to go in and to walk, and I think carrying with it the concept of a weapon or an instrument, that I am to walk and to war properly as in the daytime. Which leads us to ask the question, what does it mean to walk and to war properly as in the daytime? I would argue that Paul has just laid this out for us in Romans chapter 12. How do we walk appropriately as in the daytime? How do we war appropriately as in the daytime? Might I introduce this by saying, first and foremost, we live as those who are living sacrifices. We must not leave the context of our passage. Saints, we understand that walking appropriately in the daytime means that we are walking appropriately according to the position that God has set us in. We are given to be living sacrifices in this world. I understand that every single moment of my life is to be given to Christian worship. I live in the day. And as I live in the day, it is my desire to walk properly, understanding my position. I am a living sacrifice. This is who Paul is commanding. Paul is commanding those who say, I want to give myself up unto the service of Christ. And as I do so, it is only appropriate that I recognize the position that he has placed me in. I am a living sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, if I could just say, praise be to God. Praise be to God that me, you, who were once at enmity with God, can now be made an acceptable offering unto him as we live our lives to his glory. 
when before I was only good for being cast into the outer darkness. Praise be to God, I can walk properly in the daytime as a living sacrifice. Not only am I to walk properly in the daytime as a living sacrifice, I would argue that what you also have is in Romans 12, clear commandments in which we are to live. These commandments are, as we have broken down previously, our commandments first and foremost given to how we conduct ourselves in the church, secondarily, how we conduct ourselves toward our enemies, and then lastly, how we conduct ourselves in the world around us, that is the civil magistrate. These commandments are given. This is how we walk properly. And hear me, saints, what I find most interesting about this is, if I'm to walk properly as in the daytime and I am given armor for the battle, why is it that he commands me to not seek vengeance? Why is it that he commands me to bless those who who curse you, bless and do not curse them? Why is it that he commands me that I'm never to repay evil for evil, saints? Because we don the armor of light and we do not fight against flesh and blood. We live in a very clearly spiritual realm. And brothers and sisters, as we walk properly in the daytime, God has given us armor, not for flesh, but for spirit. He has given us the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit, and he has given that to us that we might wage war according to his plan. And oh, how we miss this. If we do not understand that he has given us clear commandments and a means by which we are to walk properly in the daytime, it does not mean that we cut off ears. It means that we conduct ourselves according to the commands of Ephesians 5, that we give ourselves to prayer and to the work of the ministry. Walking in the daytime means that we shed light everywhere we go. Saints, it is important for us to understand that as we walk properly, we go abiding by these commandments. And if I could for just a moment remind you that abiding by these commandments not only means that you must be in the world, it also means that you must be in a church, that you must conduct yourself appropriately by his commandments to your enemies, and that you must submit to the, to the civil magistrate. All of these are means by which we walk properly as in the daytime. And the most immediate of the context that we have is that Those who have dawned, those who have been brought into the eternal day, who have the armor of light upon them, must walk in love. We won't miss the previous text. Again, if I could read it to you. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Saints, walking properly in the daytime means that we give ourselves, we rejoice in the reality that we are living sacrifices, that we abide by the commandments that he has given us in Romans 12, and that we make it our aim to fulfill the law through love. And if I could maybe grab a couple of others really quickly, I would turn your attention to Galatians. Galatians Galatians reminds us of In a very similar passage, Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, and I am convinced Romans 13, at least this section, has a lot in common. But if you notice what it says in Galatians 6, it tells us, really starting in verse 22, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. What is another means by which we live properly as in the daytime saints? We are indwelled by the Spirit of God. It is perfectly reasonable that the fruits of that Spirit indwelling us might be borne out in our life. How do we walk properly in the daytime? We walk by the Spirit. 
We are living sacrifices. We obey the commands of Christ. We love one another and we long to have the fruit of the spirit born in our souls. Saints, what is more lovely in a dark world than love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are a beautiful reality that are only produced in the life of the Christian. Hear me. I know I said something precise. They are truly only produced, untaintedly only produced in the one who has the spirit of God indwelling them. Do you see them elsewhere in the world? Perhaps, but you do not see them in their fullness. God has birthed the spirit in the midst of that as he has given him to us. All of these things are produced in us. This is what it means to walk properly as in the daytime. And if I could add maybe one more. Walking properly in the daytime most certainly is everything that we have just mentioned, being a living sacrifice, obeying the commands of Christ, loving one another, having the fruits of the Spirit born in us. But one of the chief marks of living in the daytime is enjoying the day. How is it that we abide by all of these things? If I could just grasp other texts for just a moment. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Saints, you will never walk properly in the daytime if you do not love the sun. We are called to live in that perpetual day to to the enjoyment of the one who gives light to that day. If you want to see fruit produced in your life, I would plead with you, cherish the fountain of all grace. Cherish the light of the world. And as you cherish him and as you long to obey him, then most certainly all of these things will be produced in you. It's very difficult to live in the day while you hate the sun. And what we have been called to is the enjoyment of Jesus Christ. It is such a tragic thing when I see men striving, white knuckled after proper walking and all the while not following the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to walk properly, look at him, enjoy him, celebrate him, goodness. If you do not enjoy the warmth of his rays, you will not ever walk properly. We live in this perpetual day. And as we live in this perpetual day, saints, you are called to enjoy it. Goodness, few things are more tragic than looking at a begrudging Christian. This man just been delivered from darkness into light, death to life, and he's grim-faced. What? You live in the day. Not only do you live in the day, the Father sent the Son for your enjoyment. He has given Him to you. Will He not also give you everything for your good pleasure? Saints, we live in the day. Praise be to God that His light shines on us. And since it does, I'm going to enjoy it. Psalm 16 reminds us, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Christians, do you believe that? Because in reality, if we don't understand and believe that, we'll get to the next section and we'll think that God is stealing joy and pleasure from us. No, he is not. He has given us superior pleasure. Your appetites are just too weak. No, we understand that as his light shines on us, the greatest treasure in every bit of existence in the universe has been given to us. I will not find anything more desirable. I will never find anything more satisfying than the rays of his light. And what great joy I have to know that I am still only experiencing it in a shadowy form. I have it, but I will have it. And then we turn for walking properly is in the daytime. And then we have things that are forbidden because they are not of the day. And I want to hit these briefly. And again, let's connect these two for just a moment, saints. God is not robbing from you. 
He is not stealing pleasure and joy from you. What he is doing is commanding you that you might have the fullest and utmost pleasure. He's telling you the things that will rob you of great joy. Listen to the works that he lays out for us. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I want to pay close attention to the, you really have the structure of here's two things in one category, another two things in another, and another two things in the last category, three categories. The first is this, not in orgies and drunkenness. The ESV translates this this way. I think it's better translated revelry, meaning that you are giving yourself to activities in the night for the purpose of making yourself drunk. You are going and seeking pleasure in the night that will ultimately never satisfy you. And God forbids it. Hear me, saint. God forbids it. I don't know why we've gotten so cavalier about saying God forbids things. He does forbid things and it's to your joy. Ultimately, what we see is God forbidding that we give ourselves to the working of night to go and make ourselves drunk. Now, why would God command that we are to keep ourselves sober? And all throughout the scriptures, there are clear commandments about being sober-minded. But I think Ephesians 5 does give us a great deal of clarity here. It tells us that we are not to be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And I do want us to pay close attention to the language that's actually laid out here. This is in reference to altering your mind and perspective. And there are only really two reasons that we do this, right? The first is that we might relieve our inhibitions that we may go on sinning all the more. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why is that? Because it is a controlling agent. When you give yourself to drunkenness, do not be surprised that you end up in all types of immorality. You are lowering your inhibition as opposed to being constrained by the Spirit of God. We give ourselves these things that we may go, all, go on sinning all the more, that we might find some pleasure apart from Christ. Hear me, saints. You may find some forms of pleasure, but they will never be lasting and they will always, always leave you wanting more. It is an insatiable black hole of death. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Or further, not only would we may do that, that we might go on increasing some sinful form of fun, but we would even go further and say that we use it to medicate ourselves to prevent all types of convictions to lay hold of us. We go on drinking to the point of drunkenness that we might not feel and feel appropriately. Hear me, saints. We do this, if I may, for just a moment. We do this in more ways than with alcohol. We saturate ourselves with such things that we would not have to feel. And what are we doing in the midst of that? Our whole intention is not to cease ourselves from feeling, but to put ourselves in such a disposition that we can gladly shut out the voice of God in our souls. So yes, we are not to be giving to ourselves to revelry, not going on doing this, not giving ourselves to drunkenness. And then I would go further in this text, it progresses. Not only is it that we are forbidden from participating in revelries or drunkenness, and then it goes forward and says, not in sexual immorality or sensuality. Now, let's build this out for a moment. This phrase, sexual immorality, is a, is a phrase that ultimately means a defiling of the marriage bed. That's the basic translation that we could consider. And for some reason, this seems to go in contrast with this drunkenness, this lack of sober-mindedness, and then somewhat of a progression that leads us to a form of sexual immorality. Hear me, saints. I know, I know that the world tells you 24-7, 365, that you will find gratification in sinful sexual activity. Hear me, you won't. And as a matter of fact, not only will you not, you will 
actually graduate on to worse and worse forms of sexual sin because God has not designed sexual intimacy in that way. And perhaps it is that you would make some excuse. I hear this often. Ah, but I have a strong sexual appetite. No, you don't. You have an appetite for sin. And because you have an appetite for sin, an insatiable one at that, you go on multiplying sexual morality. At one point, at the point in which this was written, men would have to actually go out into the darkness to commit these forms of sexual morality. Now we brought it into our living room. And now we think that we can hide the shame of it. Saints, you cannot hide the shame of it. It rides all over you. No, we've cast these things off as it were if we're to reach back up into verse 12 and understand the commandment in light of these. Let us cast off the works of darkness. These should be the activities that we long to cast off and see them burn in the corner. Because the reality is that not only is this defilement of the marriage bed, this intaking of fornication and adultery and whatever terminology you would like to use, it will not satisfy you. Saints, it will not satisfy you. And I would plead with you, perhaps for just a moment, especially the men in the room, do not believe this will satisfy you. God has given a prescribed means by which we are to enjoy his good gifts. Do not pervert them and think that you will be blessed because of it. No, abide by his commandments, live in the day and enjoy the blessings of God in their appropriate context. He calls us not to live in sexual morality and then going forward into sensuality. This simple phrase is essentially the concept of needing to multiply sin and trespass so that we might continue to enjoy it because the reality is that as you go on enjoying sin, a sin becomes less enjoyable as you do it. And then on the other side of it, you need something more. You need something worse and saints, The appetite that we once had for sin was this, a multiplication, a desire to continue to gratify ourselves according to the flesh. And in the midst of that, what we found time and time and time again, testify for me for a moment. Were you not always found wanting? Was there not always more that you desired? Were you always left hungry though you had just eaten? Never cast these things off. Why would I cast these things off? Why would I throw these things to the wayside? Because I live in the day. I have been altered. I have been changed. This once was my address. I once lived in this state of darkness, but now I have been freed from that. And I want the armor of light. I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we go there, perhaps it is you read this and you think to yourself, one of these is not like the others. When you listen to the text, again, what are we called not to? We're called to live properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Then you get not in quarreling and jealousy. And, and you look at him and you think to yourself, ah, uh, why would he include this one here? It doesn't really seem like a work of darkness. I, I don't know if there's a, a, a better place in scripture that shouts, there are no respectable sins. When you listen to the language of this, my goodness, drunkenness, revelry, the defiling of the marriage bed, continuing on in sensuality, and then you get to know not in quarreling and jealousy. And then if we could turn our attention for just a moment back to the book of Galatians, when it tells us about these works of darkness, it says in verse 26 of, uh, of Galatians 6, let us not become conceited, 
provoking one another and envying one another. Very similar structure, very similar phrase, which is essentially articulating to us that these things are works of the flesh. If you go back to Galatians chapter, chapter five, forgive me, verse 16, it says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now listen to this. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For, those, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now listen to this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Do you notice that list? Do you, and then also perhaps do you, in the midst of hearing that, think to yourself, my goodness, I have spent my whole life categorizing the works of darkness. Because as I come to this, I think through and I can quickly identify, he says, the works of darkness are obvious. And I think to myself, oh yeah, some of these are obvious. Certainly drunkenness is obvious. Sexual morality is obvious. But then you get to this simple phrase of jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Perhaps it is that you think that your sin is not so grave and destructive as sexual immorality and drunkenness. But hear me, if you are living in a perpetual state of envy, longing to see quarrels break out and that you believe that you deserve something more than your brother and you live in a state of jealousy, you are committing works of darkness. Don't place them in a different category. They belong in the category that God put them in. The category is sin, works of darkness, and saints, we are to cast these things off. They are not to be named among us. How could they be named among us? In light of everything that we have read and studied in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he unifies the people of God, where he makes them peacemakers, and all of a sudden we're living in a state of quarreling and jealousy. How do darkness and light cohabitate? They don't. And the whole purpose of this is to lay out to us that we are not to live in the darkness any longer. We are to cast off all of these works of darkness. None are to be excluded. It doesn't matter how pet they may be or how innocent they may seem to be. Ultimately, they will all damn you. So we cast them off and throw them into the fire. We do not go on in quarreling and jealousy. To walk properly in the daytime is to both enjoy the sun that God has given us and to cast off the works of darkness. And then the question is, how is it that I can possibly abide by these things? Hear me, you have an activity. I love it, I love it. When Paul tells me to do something, to run towards something while running from something. It's so easy for my very, very simple brain. If a bad, if a bad thing is chasing me, I'm gonna run from it. If there's something wonderful in front of me, I'm gonna run to it. Praise be to God, he often puts me in a position where I'm enjoying both. I'm running from and I'm running to. In this particular case, he's telling me, flee from these things. And then this word, verse, verse 14, but <clears throat> put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Tomes could be written in this just very simple phrase but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If I could remind you for just a moment, the commands of God are sweet. I don't know if I've ever come across a command that reminded me of the kindness of my father, that he commands me to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In, the, in, the, in this, he's commanding me to put on the beloved. He's commanding me to put on the blessed one. He's commanding me to put on the one who has dwelled in endless and boundless love from his father eternally. 
He's telling me to put him on. I have never rejoiced in a commandment more than this. Sometimes we read commandments and we believe them to be burdensome just because they are commandments. It is not so with our God. When he commands us to not neglect meeting together, that is not a burdensome command. That is a wonderful prod that brings us into wonderful fellowship. And in the same way here, perhaps the pinnacle of blessed commands, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads us to ask, what does this mean? I want to turn your attention back to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment, because I think there is a formal means that we have here, and then I think there is a continuous one. Romans chapter 6, I think Paul is working from Romans 6 and all that was accomplished, all the foundation that he laid in 6 as he's finishing up Romans 13. But Romans chapter 6 says this. I'll read a brief portion at the beginning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Remember, you're not in the darkness any longer. You've been brought into the light. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Hear me, saints, before we go further. The first way we put on the Lord Jesus Christ is in that blessed, true, spiritual baptism. The whole premise of baptism is that there is an identification that takes place with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is primary. This is what the baptismal waters represents. When we come to this, when we are, when we are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ through, the finished, through his finished work and through the application of the Spirit, this is the means by which we put on the Lord Jesus Christ in the formal sense. And then he goes forward in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, let us cast off. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Listen to this. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that I put on the Lord Jesus Christ? It means first and foremost, I recognize the formal reality that the spirit of God is who, do, who does that originally. He is the one who puts on the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And then there is this command to continue that great work in the sense, not that we are putting him on in the formal sense, but instead that we are recognizing and we make it our occupation to enjoy the Christ who has been put on. That the blessings, the, the identification that we have in him is the true mark of the Christian. So first and foremost, we're identified with him in salvation, but then we make it our aim throughout the entirety of our life to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that we first and foremost realize that there are wonderful, glorious blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, Blake preached through Ephesians 1. If I could articulate any summation of that, it would be putting on the Lord Jesus Christ is reading through Ephesians 1 and saying, mine. These belong to me and I make it my occupation. My mental goal and task is to make provision, to make room that I might occupy myself by remembering all that Christ has accomplished. By saying, I am adopted into the family of God. I have been redeemed and ransomed. I understand that my righteousness before God is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. My sin debt has been paid and therefore it is cast as far as the East is from the West. I live my life in the reality that Christ belongs to me. 
not only Christ, but all of his blessings as I receive him, as I enjoy him, as I put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then and only then will I enjoy the Son appropriately. If I don't grasp the full magnitude of this, saints, I will have a a really feeble and frail understanding of what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I would plead with you for just a moment. If putting on the Lord Jesus Christ for you simply means that you're not going to hell, you have a very frail garment. No, I want to put him on. I want every ounce of that blessed armor covering my body and soul. I want to understand salvation to such a degree that my mind is guarded by that reality. I want a breastplate of righteousness adorning my chest, protecting me from any and every blow of the enemy, from any accusation the accuser might make. It might be deflected by such a wonderful raiment that as my feet are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, that I am ever constantly going, never prevented from the task of obeying my king because I have been loosed. Saints, put on the Lord Jesus Christ as we put him on and enjoy his blessings and enjoy all the benefits that are clearly revealed in scripture. And not only the benefits, but he himself enjoying the sun that shines upon you. Make it your aim and occupation to put him on. And as you make it your aim and occupation to put him on, it leads us into the conclusion of this text. The conclusion of this text, as he tells us, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The latter half of that is this simple phrase, but, forgive me, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that for a number of reasons, but first and foremost, God has commanded me to make my occupation something different. It is my primary occupation to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to meditate upon his riches, to dwell in that day, to enjoy that light. If that be the case, how can I be spending my time making provision for the flesh? Do you know why we spend time making provision for the flesh? If I could maybe say this in the most simplest of ways, the reason that we make time for the provision for gratifying the flesh is because we are not enjoying Christ. I have never once in the midst of satisfaction longed, in the midst of the satisfaction of Christ, longed for sin in that blessed, wonderful moment because these two things are at contradiction with one another. I don't understand how I am able to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ and simultaneously be making provisions that I might gratify the flesh, that which is at enmity with him. This was, if I may, the greatest jar of my Christian life. When I realized that as I looked towards sin, as I made it my aim, and perhaps it is that you would articulate it this way, you were staring at the sin that was presented before you, having somewhat of a desire to not participate in said sin, and yet, yet, In the deep recesses of your soul, you were essentially trying to get closer and closer to it that you might commit it somewhat unabashedly. But do you know what I find solves that? Is that I live in the light. And as I live in the light, all that I am doing is enjoying the sun. All I am doing is having his rays shine upon me, longing to understand and to grasp him and to see his fullness and to put him on. And as I am aiming to put him on, saints, hear me, as you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. I I don't even need to caveat that. I don't want to nuance it. When you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is all satisfying. 
Throughout your life, you've probably noticed how sins lose their strength, how they lose their, their joys. But what I have noticed in the midst of perhaps a very brief Christian life and 20-ish years is that Christ has yet to be exhausted. I have yet to be putting him on and thinking to myself, ah, there's nothing more for me to enjoy. No, I live in a perpetual and eternal day. And the wonder of eternity is that on the other side of however many years we can quantify, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ will still be the pinnacle of joy. Sin will be gone. It will be absolutely eradicated. All that I will have left, all that we will have left is Christ and those whom he has redeemed. And that is more than sufficient. Saints, I would plead with you in the midst of this. Live in the day. Cast off the works of darkness. Watch them burn and be glad as they burn. And put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will never, never be dismayed or disheartened as the Lord Jesus Christ is your comfort and your all-sufficient pleasure. Let's pray together.